From the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, this is Press Record, the podcast about the joys and challenges of learning history by talking to those who lived it. I'm Carol Prince. What histories do they not want me to tell in the classroom? What histories do they not tell in their families? Why will those silences exist? Some will be because there are no records. Some will result from our failure to imagine. But will there be some silences because there are histories you don't want to know? The audio you just heard was from Dr. Elsa Barkley-Brown, a scholar of African-American women's history. This specific excerpt comes from a short talk she delivered at a conference titled The Future of the African-American Past. In it, Barkley-Brown pushes scholars to think more imaginatively about who makes up Black America. Yet, as she notes, this process means understanding how silences in the archive are produced, I had just heard a recording of this talk when I was in the beginning stages of brainstorming for this episode of Press Record. Just over a year ago, Press Record launched its first episode, Silence Speaks Volumes. In it, we wrestled with some of the issues revolving around silence in oral history. The second episode, Backways, Understanding Segregation in the Rural South, dove into one of our ongoing projects here at the Southern Oral History Program. Be sure to take a listen if you haven't yet. This month, we're revisiting some questions around both silence and rural segregation by taking a look at the Backways Project one year later. The structure of this episode is a little different. The following half hour represents the highlights of two conversations I had with Rachel Cotterman, a field scholar here at the SOHP, who is currently working on the Backways Project. Interspersed throughout our conversation, You will also hear excerpts from some of Rachel's oral history interviews with Harold Russell and Willie Breeze, whom Rachel will introduce later in the episode. I hope this episode gives you an inside look at some of the research going on here at the SOHP and the questions some of our field scholars are navigating in the process of doing oral history. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Carol. I'm so excited to talk with you about your work. Thanks for coming on Press Record. So you're a field scholar here at the Southern Oral History Program, which is how we know each other, but you're also a geographer. What is a geographer for those who have never met one? So geography is an incredibly diverse and interdisciplinary field, um, but it's brought together by some common questions about space and place. And the part of the field that I'm situated in is cultural and critical geography. Um, So we think about the cultural meanings of place and also about how space is shaped by institutions and systems of power. That's a great summary. Thank you. And it gets us right into what we want to talk about today, which is the Backways Project. Um, And that deals with so many of these questions that you just talked about. And you've been working on this project here at the SOHP Would you mind giving us a brief summary of where the Backways Project is right now and what your role has been this year? Um, So the Backways Project is interested in questions of 
Race and Roads, um, trying to understand the relationship between racial segregation and road maintenance policies, um, and more broadly to just understand the experience of racial segregation in the rural South. Um, so the Backways Project was um, initiated by a series of questions and stories that came to us around um, roads that were located in rural spaces um, that were at some point removed from state maintenance lists or, as we're finding, were never included on state maintenance lists um, that were primarily in African-American communities. In terms of what I've been working on this year, I've been trying to do more of a focused kind of local history project working with a community that's located in southwest Hillsboro, North Carolina, so not so far from where we are today. And I decided to do more of a focused kind of community-based project in part because the interviews that had been collected so far for the Backways Project um, were pretty geographically dispersed, and they paint a broader picture of this story of racial segregation in the rural South, but it was harder to answer some of the more specific questions that we had around what policies and processes led to the closure of roads, um, as well as what the experiences were of folks who lived along these roads. Um, just to get everybody geographically situated, can you talk a little bit about where Hillsboro is, um, the significance of Hillsboro, and then it's meaning to you because you have a really special relationship to Hillsboro. Yeah, so Hillsboro is a small town. Um, it's just north of Chapel Hill, so in the northern part of Orange County, which has historically been the more rural part of the county. And it also has a pretty long personal history for me. So I actually grew up um, just up the road um, from the community that I've been working with um, for Backways this semester. Um, I grew up off of a small gravel road um, that's about five miles southwest of Hillsboro. Rachel, let's get to the heart of this really rich and complicated project, which is Harvey's Chapel. Can you explain what Harvey's Chapel is where is it and why is it significant to this project? Yeah, absolutely. So Harvey's Chapel is the reason that Backways originally got interested in this particular area southwest of Hillsboro. Harvey's is a small AME church that's really a family church. So most of the folks who attend are related to each other in one way or another and are related to a group of families who founded the church in 1892. So this was a group of formerly enslaved folks who lived in the surrounding area who had begun meeting as a brush arbor community, gathering to worship together in the woods, and then in the 1890s they joined together to purchase a piece of land from a local white landowner in order to establish their first fixed location. And the original church site was located along a wagon road that is no longer in use, but is actually just barely still visible today. These early roads were graded by being cut into the landscape, so you can still find traces of many of them. Um, by the 1930s, however, this road had fallen into such a state of disrepair that the congregation could no longer readily access the church, and they decided to move locations at this point. So my work this year has been about trying to trace some of the story of this road, both to understand the experiences of the folks who lived and worked and worshipped along it in the early and mid-20th century, 
and also to identify some of the public policies that led to its gradual decline. Um, so this process has included collecting oral histories, work in the archives, and also a lot of walking in the woods, trying to identify the location of former roads and homesteads and visiting the original church site itself. So the so this was a walkway and the foundation is right up there. Part of what I've been learning about this period of the 1910s through the 1930s is that it was a moment of really profound transformation in the road maintenance system. At the turn of the 20th century, public roads were all maintained on a county level through a relatively informal system, but this all changed in the wake of a widespread activist campaign that was known as the Good Roads Movement. Um, These folks were focused on improving roads throughout the rural South. And this was a campaign with um, highly populist rhetoric, um, but also some very clear economic incentives to increase business and tourism in the region. And under the Good Roads Movement, we saw the formation of the first state highway commission and the first formal system of road surveys and maps that classified roads. So this doesn't sound like such a bad thing, right? Yeah, so it was very complex. Um, One of the hidden consequences of this movement um, was the institutionalization in many ways of the existing Jim Crow racial order. One element of this was a deeply racialized system of road maintenance um, that emerged in this era, which was built around the use of convict labor, which at that time would have been primarily African-American men. Um, There were also deeply uneven levels of investment in roads in white and black communities already in this time. Um, But the Good Roads Movement brought a new, quote-unquote, scientific system that attempted to rationalize these inequalities. Um, And this has had really lasting impacts as the roads that were paved in this era are largely the roads that we still drive on today. Yeah, so our understanding at Backways is that the Harvey's Chapel Road was just one of many roads in black and also some poor white rural communities that were sites of strategic neglect and disinvestment during this era. I think one of the roles of oral history that is so important in this project is to really bear witness to the fact that these spaces in these rural communities along these back roads were full of really rich and vibrant life. Um, And when we look at maps, we can see that these spaces appear as blank, blank spaces. The kind of spatial knowledge that is contained in the maps um, has created what's essentially a depopulated space, a space without people and a space without um, these deep connections to land and to place that are contained within the oral histories. And um, Dad was the best provider anybody would want. And he would help anybody, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes we would be, well, as a, as a, also as a little child, it was five of us kids, as I said before, and um, we sang. Um, mm-hmm. We were... Uh, a f- family singers, and uh, mm. so the Breeze family sang all over North Carolina, South Carolina, and parts of Virginia as I was growing up. And so, um, 
my dad, you know, he always we'd be going someplace and somebody got stopped on the side of well stopped on the side of the road. The vehicle broke down. Dad would get right out of the the car and and in his suit help that person. <laughs> and you know, he never he he never would just you know go past somebody. And leave them stranded. You know, he would stop. We would all we'd be in the car, like, but we didn't. Nobody said anything because we know what Daddy was gonna do. He wasn't gonna walk away, leave somebody stranded. So wow. sometimes we'd be sitting in the car, Daddy, man, we get ready to go, and uh, you know, but we just be there until he finished, you know, helping out the person. <laughs> know that a lot of the work that you've done around this project is in the archives and so can you tell me a little bit about the kinds of things that you found in the archives and uh, what the archives have told you and haven't told you specifically because sometimes what the archives don't tell you is just as valuable yeah so that's absolutely what we have encountered in this project is that the archive especially in rural areas, is really spotty. Um, There's a lot of holes and a lot of silences and a lot of gaps. Um, But we've found that those silences are actually just as significant, and part of what we're doing is trying to understand why those silences exist. Um, So when you say silences, Mm. what do you mean by that? I mean um, voices that are not included, even large time periods that are overlooked, I think that the archive tells a particular story from a particular vantage point, um, and usually from the vantage point of people in power in any given historical moment. So part of what we do with oral history is try to really center the voices of folks who are not very represented within the archive. And you can really see this dissonance between the oral histories and the archives around this question of land. The issue of land deeds has come up in a couple of your oral history interviews, right? What then have the archives shown? One thing that we've found is that um, records of land ownership are not a very reliable way of understanding um, who lived in a rural area at any given moment. Um, And that's in part because, particularly in the early, early 20th century, there were a lot of tenant farmers, and so a lot of the land was held in really large parcels by wealthy white landowners. Um, And then there were tenant farmers who were both black and white folks um, working on that land. And also because um, what we found in the case of Harvey's Chapel, there were many um, land deeds of black farmers and black communities that somehow or another um, were not kept in the archive. And here's a clip from Harold Russell that speaks to this. When my uncle and I... uh went and tried to do it. We got so much runaround, <laughs> so I just asked her if she would help us, and <laughs> she did. We had gone in with the old deeds and everything, and they just said, we can't figure out where this is, and we can't, you don't have a clear deed, and we don't know where this is a valid deed, and all this stuff. And within, I gave her all the information, and within two or three days, it was, it was back on the map. Hmm. So, do you know why it why it fell off the map? I don't know. Hmm. 
it has felt extremely important to me to be willing to sit in silence, um, both with interviewees and with the archives, um, to rather than following this impulse to fill in those gaps and silences in a simplistic way, to really stay in the silence and to know that the things that are unsaid are often just as powerful as the things that are said. And I think oral history is particularly adept at capturing that because it's so truthful to the way we speak um, and the moments when we decide to pause in ways that are actually deeply significant. Yeah, and I think one element of that also that I have navigated is as a white interviewer, interviewing primarily African-American folks, um, as well as some white folks who have lived in this area. I'm just really aware of, um, really aware of that dynamic and the things that are left unsaid. So how do you think about your personal relationship to this research project? The neighborhood that I grew up in um, was founded by a group of folks, many of whom were affiliated with the Quaker meetings in Durham and Chapel Hill in the 1970s. Um, And it's an intentional community that's located on 100 acres of land, um, some of which is collectively owned and some of which is owned by individual families. Um, And growing up in this neighborhood, I had a strong sense of community with the families that um, lived in this neighborhood, lived on this land, um, most of whom were white. Um, But I felt pretty aware of the fact that I didn't know the neighbors living up the road, many of whom are African-American families. And it's something that I became increasingly aware of as I grew older, I think one of the things that's been most powerful for me about this project is walking on land that I walked on as a kid that I, at that point in my life, understood as just nature, as just a natural landscape, as just the woods, Um, and coming to realize that there are all of these histories embedded in this land And the reality that displacement was a pretty significant force in creating the landscape that raised me. Yeah, so that's something that I've been really sitting with and wrestling with and trying to understand um, through this process. So could we talk a little bit more about how it feels to interview people about a place where you also grew up? There's a clip from your oral history interview with Harold Russell that we'll play in a second, where the two of you are talking about a piece of property that really illuminates how these oral histories feel a little bit different. Sure. Yeah. So also just really want to send a huge, a huge amount of gratitude to Harold Russell, who's been really a collaborator in this process. Um, Harold is one of the descendants of one of the founding families of 
Harvey's Chapel and has done an enormous amount of work to preserve the history of this community. So in this conversation about two ponds, um, this is about a piece of land um, that was owned by George and Robina Walker, who were members of Harvey's Chapel. Um, and I, my understanding is I think they um, were one of the larger black landowners in this area. They owned a piece of land that I think was almost 200 acres at one point. Um, so yeah, a really large operating farm. Um, and it's a piece of land that I never knew was owned by a black family historically. Or were there houses back here? As far as I know, there were no houses back there, but mm. I, I don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember hearing anybody talking about any houses being back there, mm-hmm. except there were houses, there was one big house over near where you live. Right, the big Moorfields house? No. Oh. Back. Back down right here in, somewhere. No, just as you turn Loop Road going towards the Moorfield estate, mm. if you turn into the left, right there where you say you turn in, mm-hmm. if you turn in kind of extreme left, and kind of go straight back, which would be going. Oh yeah. Um, we'd be coming back this way. No, would yeah, we'd be, we'd be going uh, south. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an uncle, an aunt that lived there. They lived in that house with the the two ponds. Yeah. Wow, I've been walking on that property my whole life. Really? Yeah, it's a beautiful piece of property. I don't remember but one pond, but they, they might have built another one. That mm. was the George Walker property. Okay. And those were an aunt and uncle? Yeah. George Walker married my grandfather's sister, Robina. She was a Thompson. This interview project has been unlike any other one that I've done. Because it is so close to home and because I do have so much personal investment in this particular place and also such a strange amount of very specific local knowledge. Um, It's allowed me to have these really powerful conversations about place that gets down to these very nitty-gritty details um, about who lived where and what were sites of personal significance. And see how a great-grandfather was one of the founders as you saw in there. Yeah. So uh, he he used to go years before I started going, but they used to walk through the woods right up <coughs> Juniper Road. Okay. Right across the road there. Uh-huh. And they would go up about, uh, I guess about a, the length of about uh, 500 yards or so, and then they'd go into the woods to the left and then they'd stay in the woods, really, until they got up to the church. Wow. From here. Okay, I'm trying to imagine that. So Borland goes there, and then Orange Grove comes up, and then Dimmick's Mill comes off there. Okay. Actually, wow. I think if you would, if you would probably go due uh, northeast, you would probably end up at the church. Okay. Just to give some context for listeners new to oral history. Your interviews differ from the structure of a typical life history interview. Can you talk about whether you think you're conducting oral histories in the traditional sense or oral geographies? 
Yeah, so that is a question that's been sitting with me this whole time is whether I'm gathering oral histories or oral geographies. And I think the answer is probably that they're a bit of both, of course. Um, but it is interesting how I think oral histories tend to privilege time and these um, interviews that I've been doing really privilege space. And so because of it, they have this very interesting and very nonlinear relationship to time. We're talking about particular places and we're talking about all of these layers of human history and experience and social life that are embedded in each of these places um, in ways that are not necessarily chronological. You know, how you can walk into a place and you have a memory that occurred 20 years ago and you also have the reality of what it looks like now and you have the memory of something that occurred two weeks ago and those are all present in a space. And that reminds me of... A clip from your interview with Willie Breeze, who's talking about her experience of returning to Hillsboro after being away for a while. Can you talk about this clip? Yeah, so Willie Breeze grew up in what was originally the Harvey's Chapel schoolhouse, um, which was very close to the original location of Harvey's Chapel. And it was a black schoolhouse that closed when the school system consolidated, and the Breeze family lived in the building for several years before they built another house on the same piece of land. So Willie has a really deep connection to this land and community, and she moved away from the area for a number of years, but has since come back. And in this interview, she reflects on how Hillsborough both has and hasn't changed um, in the time that she was gone. When you're away from a place for so long, um, there's some sort of disconnect, you know, and I, I, I was happy to be back home but you know, never this. It's never uh, the way it used to be, and that's good to some degree. You know, uh, I nothing that I can think of that's so mm-hmm. you know outstanding to me. Barbecue's not as good. Say again. The barbecue's not as good. Oh my gosh! <laughs> no, that's for sure. That is for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those people, they don't, they, they don't even know how to make the barbecue, and they don't even know it. Mm. <laughs> when I went over there that day, and I, I sat at the counter to eat, I, I felt so uncomfortable. I haven't been back in there since. Mm. I felt like I was on exhibit or something. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's almost like it's almost like they were surprised to see me, and surprised that I really wanted to come inside and eat. I just it was just the most uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I really felt like I really had stepped back in time. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is, I think they have stepped back in time on that corner. Mm-hmm. There's not, I'm telling you, you don't see no brown folk over there. Mm-hmm. You just don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I <laughs> told my brother that, and I said, I'm, over there in the barbecue house, it was like it was a, an imposition for them. And then the guy, like, he was straining to speak to me, you know. I was like, so I was like, all right, it ain't worth it to me. So, yeah. you know, some things never change. And mm-hmm. and it's a lot of people here don't want it to change, mm-hmm. and I don't feel like fighting with them. Yeah. And other places I might would maybe push it harder, but yeah. um, it's like, you know, go on. I ain't 
Sounds like you've already done a lot of fighting in your yeah, life. I don't feel like it anymore. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Orange High, USC Chapel Hill, and how many other places? The sad thing is, it really feels like we're going backward instead of forward. Mm. And um, very sad. I, I, I truly believe that Martin Luther King, I think he believed the same thing that, you know, in the Bible, the disciples, when Jesus said, you know, I'm going away and I'm coming again, I think they thought he was going to come back, you know, at least next year or something, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think that Martin Luther King thought by now, they're going to be as one people, mm. you know, blood, skin, you know, one people. Jeez. <laughs> His work but, isn't uh, finished. His yeah. work is definitely not finished. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Uh, it, it, like I said, it, we, it seems, seems more like we're going backward than forward. So Rachel, just to wrap up, what do you want our listeners to take away from this project? Yeah, so I think one of the central contributions of Backways is the way that it highlights this paradox between the brutal reality of state-sponsored racial discrimination alongside the incredible resilience of Black placemaking practices, which is something that's being really brilliantly explored right now in an emerging body of literature around black geographies. And this is also something that Darius Scott, who's another field scholar who's worked on this project, has done a lot of amazing work around. So we know that African-American communities have always carved out space to create deeply meaningful relationships to place and to land, even in the face of white supremacist systems that have so consistently disinvested from black places and driven forms of both forced emplacement as well as displacement. So I guess the challenge of backways is to hold these rural roads as sites of both racialized disinvestment and also as sites of solidarity and community and home as sites of resistant forms of spatial knowledge that understand these off-the-map spaces, not in any way as empty, but as full of deep cultural meaning and significance and social life. Yeah, I think Mr. Brown Gardens, um, his store was there, his grocery store. Uh, Mr. Brown, uh, you know, like if we ran out of food or something, he would, and you know, if Daddy was at work or something, he would uh, bring food to the house. Wow. Um, uh, my dad had a, a running scale of, I mean, you know, like he, he could get money on, um, get food on credit and, you know, pay whenever he paid, you know. And, uh, but, you know, I didn't know a whole lot of this stuff till I was older, you know, mm-hmm. and talk more talking to mama and stuff. I learned a lot of things along the way. A few things I knew, but, you know. But, and also as a child, the the church building down there that used to be a church building just all the way on the ground, Alan's? that's where I went to church, okay. Alice Chapel. Mm-hmm. 
uh, we would um, get ready for church, and we would just walk down the hill there to the um, to the church. My mom and dad owned all of this from from where this driveway turns in mm-hmm. all the way down there uh almost to the church where that drive turns to the left and go down in there mm-hmm. uh it, uh mom and dad owned uh, uh see so altogether that was around it was close to fifteen acres and then um and then my other brother owned the two acres that I'm on now across mm-hmm. the road but when um Everybody, you know, got grown and going in all different directions. Nobody wanted to come back out here. And I said, I'm coming back. One of the things that has been challenging and interesting about this project is the fact that I'm part of this history. It's easy, I think, for us to fall into this trap of believing it's possible to kind of erase the interviewer from an oral history. I think it is really important to be aware of how much space we as interviewers are taking up and to continue to center the voices of the folks whose stories we're trying to document. And this project in particular has been a really beautiful um, reminder for me of how oral history is always about constructing knowledge together and about two people who are coming together to witness each other. I mean, it looks like it was a little zigzag right then. <laughs> but then there's this road that's not there anymore that goes straight through the middle. Yeah. Well, it is there. Actually, oh, it is. Yeah. it's got a gate it on there. it. Yeah. I think that's the one they used to use when they were driving into here to come to, to this spot. Oh. Right, but it's just this branch of it. It's, mm-hmm. It doesn't exist anymore. Thanks for listening to Press Record. Special thanks to Rachel Cotterman, Darius Scott, Rachel Seidman, Melinda Maynard-Lowry, and the National Museum of African American History and Culture, the American Historical Association, the Smithsonian Institution's Conference, The Future of the African American Past, and Dr. Elsa Barkley-Brown. Please be sure to check out our website with links to full interviews and more information about the Backways Project at sohp.org backslash podcast. As always, we want to hear from you. Email us with your thoughts and feedback at pressrecordsohp at gmail.com or like and comment on our Facebook page, searchable as Press Record Podcast. You can also tweet the Southern Oral History Program at SOHP Oral History. Make sure to also subscribe and rate us on iTunes and SoundCloud. As always, thanks for tuning in to Press Record, and we'll see you next month.